Welcome to the Rise of the Challenge podcast. I'm your host, Alex Burkett. Joining me this week is Dom O'Neill, who's the lead content strategist at blogify.net and a TV4 management and stage management manager. He comes on the show to talk about his journey and his rise to the challenge as he was in a steady career and then everything hit where he kind of had to find what's the next challenge for him. And that's how he came up with blogify.net and he's excelling at what he does. He also talks about the journey of raising a family during the pandemic and how he had to find a way to make money to support everyone in his family. And he talks about his rise to the challenge and how he doesn't fear failure because he knows he will put the passion and the mindset to accomplish whatever he has on hand. If you're new to the podcast, make sure you follow and subscribe on all your major favorite podcast platforms as we're inching closer and closer to our first episode on our YouTube channel. Our quick fire challenge this week is change can be scary, but you know what's scarier? Allowing fear to stop you from growing, evolving, and progressing. And Dom talks about what does fear do to the mindset of an individual and how the biggest CEOs and companies or the presence of companies, they all have had fear of failure. But what makes them stronger is being able to focus on the task at hand and accomplishing their goals. So sit back and relax and enjoy the rise of the challenge of Dom O'Neill. Welcome back to the show. Joining me today, he's an entrepreneur of the company Vlogify, a TV floor manager, a live event stage manager. It's Dom O'Neill. How are you doing today, Dom? Hey, man. Good to see you. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for joining us on the show. Um, We connected through LinkedIn, and I was very inspired by your story and what your mission was and the message that you told me about how you were able to overcome obstacles and rise to the challenge, and I wanted to learn more about that. So with each of my guests, we like to start right at the beginning. What were you involved in growing up? So growing up, um, I always liked to create content, even before creating content was a thing. You know, even before you could stick stuff on YouTube and what have you, I, I think I bought my first video camera, if you remember the high h cassettes, mm-hmm. if anyone remembers those. Um, the, the quality was poor, but they were extremely expensive, which was nice. <laughs> uh, and I, I, you know, I bought my first camera at 16 with some money from uh, birthday, I think it was. Uh, and I just kind of made videos for myself. You know, I... I, I so for my, uh, hang on, it was my 16th birthday, I bought a camera, this Hi8 thing, um, so I could record on that, and then I would hook up some VHS machines to that camera recorder so I could edit. I could do kind of uh, old school style editing, uh, and just make videos for myself, videos of the holiday started out with, but then we started, you know, scripting stuff, I then got a car, and me and my mates went around shooting gangster videos, and... Um, uh, uh, robbery films and all that kind of, kind of short films, uh, stuff you'd see on YouTube all the time now. But back in the day, there was, I mean, we just did it for the fun of it. There was nowhere to put these things. Uh, so I always kind of liked creating content. And the problem with back in those days is that creating content was both uh, expensive and time-consuming, uh, which kind of from a business point of view, you either didn't bother doing it or you had to sell it to like a super high-end, like 
£25,000 for a corporate video wasn't a huge amount of money, which is nice back in those days. Um, but I just really enjoyed telling stories and creating stuff. Did you have any inspirations or motivations growing up when it came to like video making and all that? I just, I, you know, I, I watch films a lot. So we used to do this thing back in England called Orange Wednesday. And every Wednesday, if you were part of the Orange mobile phone network, you could watch films for half price. So religiously, me and my mates for like four or five years, since the, you know, the Wednesday my mum and dad allowed me to get a mobile phone and get on the bus myself, every single Wednesday, religiously, me and the same people went to watch a film, even if there was no good films on. We sat through some shocking, shocking films, but we just loved watching films. We loved getting good stories. We loved uh, kind of taking those films and coming up with ideas for stuff that we could shoot ourselves. Uh, so definitely kind of cinema um, was a massive uh, thing for me. Uh, you know, back in those days, obviously, we didn't have Netflix. We didn't have Amazon Prime. So, you know, we're very much reliant on uh, watching linear telly. Uh, we have a channel in the UK called Channel 4, which is where kind of all the edgy shows were made. Uh, they did lots of live programming, lots of kind of music programming, lots of uh, really interesting stuff aimed at kind of my age group as well. Um so you know, Channel Four was a great uh, was was a great influence, and also Channel Four made shows which kind of they started to make kind of shows like Big Brother and stuff, which kind of felt like you could make those shows. You know, you could potentially with the equipment that you you were starting to be able to buy. It's like, well, actually, I could make some of those shows. You know, I I look back in the day, and we had uh, we still do have a broadcaster. I'm in Scotland now. We still have them. And it's the BBC. Uh, and on their website, it was like making film. You want want to make shows yourself? Don't bother. It's too hard. And it's like ah. Oh. But then you go over to Channel Four, and they're making stuff. When actually, you think you know what? We're not too far away from me and my mates actually being able to make these and somehow distributing them to somewhere. Uh, so so the so Channel Four was massive, and the kind of content that they were pumping out uh, in the late kind of nineties, early two thousands was a huge inspiration to kind of even the stuff I'm making now and the reason why I'm here, you know? I love that you mentioned Big Brother. I am a huge, in the United States, we have our own version of Big Brother, which is kind of different than the UK, but I've seen every yeah. single season of the UK's Big Brother. I mean, wow. celebrity, it was it's just <laughs> entertaining. But like you said, yeah. someone could easily make that. I mean, yeah. not going to say I'm going to put cameras up in my house and someone's going to watch me 24-7 because yeah. they would yeah. just get bored after like a minute of seeing me just sitting on a couch or something. But a lot of the shows back then, it was something that it hasn't been done before, and so it was fun to watch. But then now you come up and you're seeing, okay, you have a spinoff of this, you have a spinoff of that, and it's kind of like, okay, we want something new or something. Mm. But, but like you said, um, a lot of families watched cinema back then, and it was just their time to be together. Would you say that was the time spent with your mates was the best time at, during that? Because now it's like everyone's on their phones, but back then we didn't have the yeah. technology. I mean, what what's really kind of great about cinema over kind of anything else is that it kind of really draws your attention. It's like you turn the phone off, you sit in a place which is dark and quiet, and you can all enjoy the film together. And then what I liked about the bus ride on the way home before I could drive was we could sit and chat about the film and what we liked, what we didn't like, pick things apart. 
uh, kind of go into those kind of details, which if everyone is watching Netflix, you know, everyone sat in the house watching their own show on Netflix or their own show on Amazon or what have you, it's just, you know, no one's coming away with the same story. But the beauty of cinema is everyone came away with the same basic experience, but then you could talk about what they got from that basic experience, which is it's hard to recreate these days apart from in a cinema experience. So growing up, what was considered your dream job that you wanted to pursue? Dream job? Yeah, I mean, cinema was obviously, you know, anyone who has any interest in filming at all, period, kind of cinema is the top, you know, Hollywood films uh, is kind of the top tier. Uh, so kind of doing something, I always knew I wanted to do something in kind of motion pictures or you know, TV, higher end TV and what have you. Um, so I kind of looking, you know, one of the main reasons why we went to the cinema so much is me and a lot of my mates wanted to get into that industry. And so learning as much as possible about the industry kind of made sense. And also we, we, we enjoyed going to the cinema. So it kind of made it all kind of tied, tied together. So definitely being something like a, a, a cinematographer or a director, uh, was definitely something on massive Hollywood features. That's kind of what young Dom was interested in. <laughs> when you were pursuing school and university, was that the direction you were going to? Yeah, so I uh, once I finished my compulsory schooling in the UK, I then went back uh, to do non-compulsory schooling. So I did kind of film studies, media studies, drama, uh, and then I moved on to do um, uh, un an undergrad degree, a bachelor's degree in media production, moved on to do a master's degree in radio production and management. So all the way through my educational career, it was kind of learning about that. I didn't particularly care much about school. I didn't like school that much. I did not like it, but I was just very nonplussed about the whole thing. I felt like like tr trigonometry. They, they they taught us trigonometry like over and over and over again, but I don't even remember what it is. <laughs> you know what I mean? When you brought it up, I'm like, I I remember learning it, but Which I know I is that, I, is I that about the triangle? Oh or yeah. Is that, <laughs> or, or is that Pythagoras? Or I mean, so I mean, all that I just kind of felt was kind of I did it just didn't resonate with me. But kind of film studies, media studies, uh, drama, creative stuff, even art. You know, really resonated with me. It was something that I got a passion in, and I find it very difficult to learn about stuff that I'm not particularly passionate about. I can definitely agree with that. I think school nowadays, well, college, college, they want you to take all these classes, but I'm not passionate about. It. Like, like you said, trigonometry. I was a math guy when growing up, but I didn't want to pursue anything in math, but. I was a sports management major, and anything sports, business, events, that was my thing. So if I was in those classes, it was the best time. But anything else, English, uh, science, no. I, that was just not me. So I can definitely, it was like, focus on what you want to be interested in. Um, but then I had to look at searching outside and branching out into different areas because everyone has this one path but you never know where the path will take you. What was your first job after uh, school? First, so I had a paper round, if anyone remembers paper rounds, the paper boy. Um, I had that from when I was 12 to when I was 16. So strictly speaking, that was the first job. I always quite like entrepreneurial 
relationship. I always quite like earning my own money. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, even though the paper round wasn't that well paid, I did it so fast. It actually worked out as very good money. Uh, typical entre- entrepreneurial spirit. Um, and then kind of when I left school, I kind of I kind of lost a bit of energy at school. I kind of uh, felt the school process kind of took it out of me a bit. And there wasn't a huge amount of, where I was living at the time in Newcastle in England, there wasn't a huge amount of film and television opportunities. So I wasn't entirely sure what to do. Uh, so I kind of potted around different different kind of rubbishy jobs. Sports store was particularly rubbish. I think that was the first one. Also worked in a bar for a while, which was fine, but again, particularly rubbish. Uh, worked in restaurants. All that kind of, you know, part-time. I'm filling my time until I can work out what on earth I'm going to do next type thing. During those times, what was your mindset going through it? As you weren't like passionate about it, but it was just something to make money at that time. How did you keep yourself motivated to go back to the job each day? I mean, motivation was something I I genuinely struggled with when I was younger. Um, I'm quite a self-motivated person now. I'm, you know, an entrepreneur. I run run my own business. You have to be extremely self-motivated to uh, even get up in the morning and do that. But when I was younger, I didn't. And I think it took me a long time to get where I needed to be because I didn't have the motivation. And I didn't necessarily have people pushing me in the right direction as well. Um, and so definitely um, I kind of meandered a lot. I was a meander in my kind of 20s were just this me- meandering from one thing to another. Uh, but I kind of, it just kind of got to the point where I was like, well, I have to do something. I have to go somewhere. I've said that I've got all these degrees and masters and what have you, but I have to do something. Um, and that's where I kind of started looking maybe a bit further afield. I'd always lived in Newcastle in England. I would kind of got to the point where it's like, well, it doesn't actually have looking further afield. Uh, I started looking further afield uh, to different places. I looked uh, to like sub- southern England uh, and then up to Scotland. Um, and kind of, I, I was really, really ill one day, uh, which is a which is a, a, a weird way to start story. But I was really ill one day, and there was a, a job opportunity on a website that I'd been told about by a friend of mine uh, for a a runner position in Glasgow, in Scotland, in Glasgow. Um, but it was like it was like a ten page application, and I was I was terrible at writing applications, and I was terrible at writing CVs. Uh, but I wasn't feeling very well, so I thought, oh, fine, I'll spend my day, do- my day doing this. Um, and ultimately, that's what got me my route into television. By, you know, just happening to be ill that day and going, you know what, let's do something positive. Let's, let's, let's make this happen, okay? And, uh, and looking further outside the box, you know, I knew that where I was at wasn't working. And so my mindset was, right, let's look outside the box and let's just start applying and pushing and make it happen. I think it's one of those where you kind of have to look at the risk-reward kind of a way where you told yourself, I need to find something new. I needed to get myself Mm. out there. I needed to get to where I want to be. And you had to build that confidence up to be able to submit the resume and all that stuff. Talk about your transition into the production side or being the runner in that position. Yeah. 
Yeah, so I kind of run as one of those. Ent- well, it wasn't. It was back in the day. It was an entry level kind of job, and the beauty of being someone like a runner for a large organisation like the BBC, a big broadcaster, is that you know the BBC at the time made so many different types of show. So the, I mean, there, there was opportunities to be runners at other smaller production companies. They either did documentary, just did sport, or they just did drama. The beauty of working for a, such a huge broadcaster. Um, was that they did a bit of everything. So one week you could be working on a children's show. So obviously the beauty of the BBC was that they made so many different kinds of things. So you know the first week you could be working for a children's show, and then the next week you could be working on a big time, big budget adult drama, and then the week after that you could be sent off to Europe to film a documentary. Uh, and so you know at 23 I had no ties, I had no no risk. I was happy to travel wherever they sent me work on whatever shows this about me and I just had a really open mind at that point. I just wanted to learn as much as possible and I felt that because I was in the right area, my mindset completely changed from being quite a kind of a negative mindset back uh, how I was where I originally came from to a very open mindset and I tried, it was really uh, exciting time for just learning about what it is that I wanted to do and how I wanted to do it. What did you learn about yourself professionally that you didn't get to learn about yourself growing up? Uh, I am, yeah, I mean, working in telly is a pretty intense industry. Uh, the deadlines are often insanely short. Uh, the risk factors are extremely high, both financially for the companies making these shows. Uh, but also, you know, the, the work can be extremely dangerous. You're often, you know, jumping on and off ships or or running through the streets of Europe trying to film things, you know. So uh, it kind of really taught me that I can push myself a lot harder than I thought I could. I can work a lot harder. I can work a lot smarter. I can find out ways to make chaos less chaotic because anyone who's worked in telly or, you know, live events like yourself or sports management, TV shows, is what you're doing is you're creating chaos and you're trying to funnel it down into some, into some kind of content that makes sense. Uh, and I, I kind of really liked trying to create systems out of chaos uh, as a, you know, an assistant floor manager and a floor manager and a stage manager in live events and telly. That is, in essence, what you're doing. You're given, right, this is what we want to happen. These are the kind of people who are going to be here. Make it happen at this time. And it kind of, uh, it really taught me that I, I loved that side of things. I loved kind of... Um, Pulling things out of nowhere. I loved working to tight deadlines. I loved uh, I loved the razzmatazz. I loved pyros. I loved uh, gl- glitter cannons. Um, I worked in uh, children's telly for ten, 10 years, and it's all pyros and gl- glitter cannons, uh, which is fantastic. Uh, so yeah, but it also taught me that I needed a level of excitement in my job. I couldn't just go and scan stuff or warehouse or something like that. I needed some kind of level of excitement in my job just to keep it going. Do you have a favorite project or show that you got to work with or work on? Uh, One of my favorite shows is a show called Match of the Day. Uh, If you're into uh, football or soccer, as you guys call it, uh, every week there is a show called Match of the Day where um, they literally, it's the highlights of that week's Premier League matches and basically you get as a floor manager you are paid to go and watch football uh, <laughs> you get paid to stand on the touchline with the managers with the fourth officials and just watch football from there and you know you've got your headphones on you're feeding 
you know, messages back to the truck about what substitutes are about to happen, who got a red card, who got a yellow card, why, and what have you. So you are like the prime person for the broadcaster and everything's kind of going to and from you. So that's a fantastically exciting job uh, on a show that's been running for, for decades. Um, and it's, it, it's just, it is without doubt, you know, as jobs go. And it was very much a job. Um, as jobs go, it's possibly the best job ever. That sounds like such a hard job. I feel bad for yeah. you. <laughs> I would love that. I mean, I've gotten into Premier League a lot this past year. So, I mean, it's like every morning, it's like that's the first thing that's on TV for me is I start watching that. Is that what you posted on LinkedIn? I think you were at a football stadium. Was that like yes. what you were doing there? Or was that something yes, else so you were doing? Yes. Yeah, so that was, uh, I, I, as well as doing match of the day, I also work with um, the international broadcasters doing the same job. But rather than the home domestic broadcasters, I work with the international broadcasters. So it was quite interesting. Obviously, football, UK football and English football specifically, is sold to a number of different countries some of which speak English, some of which don't. And so uh, the broadcast rights holders uh, sell two channels. You, you can buy into just the pictures or you can buy into the pictures and uh, the English commentary. Mm -hmm. So I am there in the stadium and I am feeding back to a team in London who are providing the commentary. Uh, and so I've got a, a direct line to the producer who's with the commentators and I'm just making sure that they're aware of what's going to happen pre-match. Uh, I'm in the well. I'm usually in the tunnel trying to work out the formations and trying to get as many behind-the-scenes tips off of the staff in the stadium. Uh, but obviously, that's all kind of a little bit different now because of COVID. No one's allowed within uh, touching distance of the team, as it were. So I was kind of sat more towards uh, the radio guys, the, ra the radio guys in the ground, and so we're just working with the radio guys to make sure we all kind of knew what was going to happen and we kept each other right during the game. Uh, and I was one of only kind of 200 people who actually watched a Premier League game live at the weekend, which is pretty special. That's impressive. That is very yeah. impressive. Yeah. So you said that you started as a runner and then you got into a TV floor manager or in live yeah. event stage manager. Talk about that process. How did you move up into those positions? So this, this is a bit of it, but if anyone wants to move upwards within the media, it is much faster to move upwards through smaller companies than massive broadcasters. Uh, the pay probably won't be as good for a while in the smaller companies, but they will promote you much, much faster. Um, and so, you know, it's always best to leave, go up a notch, and then come back to the broadcaster, or leave the big broadcaster, go as high as you possibly can get, and then go to the broadcaster. That isn't what I did. I stayed at the broadcaster. The money was quite good, and um, I was quite used to being at that one broadcaster. So I moved up the ranks extremely slowly, especially because I was in such a small niche. Mm -hmm. If you're in production, if you're a producer, production management assistant, uh, production coordinator, because they need so many of those people and so many productions need those people, there's a lot faster trajectory. While with floor management, there's only, you know, most, most shows that need a floor manager is either sport or big studio shows. And there is only so many stadiums and only so many studios that actually need those people. And there's only so many times of year that they are needed. Mm -hmm. uh, and so what I should have done is left a lot earlier, moved up the ranks a lot faster. 
Now, once I left the big broadcaster, that is when my career really took off. And I then went to smaller broadcasters or, or kind of came back to the broadcaster, but on a much more ad hoc basis and really built my career outside the broadcaster. And so if anyone's listening who's wanting to go down that route, absolutely go to the smaller independents first. Is there a show or series that you hope to work with in the future that you haven't gotten a chance to? Hmm. It is a good question. I, I, I have always wanted to go into space. Right? So any TV show which would allow me to go into space is something that I want. So live from, you know, the BBC is really good for doing live under the sea, live from the desert, live from the Sahara, live from the jungle. Um, and there's usually a floor manager attached to that show. At some point, someone will do a live from space television show. And I would like to be the floor manager for that show. That would be very interesting because I know yeah. they send people up there, but to us, we only see the astronauts that go up. We don't yeah. like see yeah. the behind-the-scenes people and all that. Yeah. So, hopefully, oh. hope, hope, hopefully, with the making going to space that bit cheaper, one of these days that will happen. Yes, yes. So talk about the challenges you have overcome throughout your career or the obstacles you have faced. Yeah. So, I mean, the media business, anyone who wants to get into media or live events or, or even you know, digital media, social media management, uh, video creation, any of that sort of thing, it is a very, very fluctuating business, which means you can make serious quantities of money very quickly you can also lose serious quantities of money very quickly. So if you are wanting some kind of easy, stable existence, creative industries is, is not necessarily where you're wanting to go. Um, there, I mean, so many times now, you know, I see a lot of the moment with the pandemic, people, you know, being furloughed and then being made redundant and what have you. Like, that happens constantly in the media. Like, when the pandemic hit, it, it almost didn't make any difference because before the pandemic hit, we had Brexit, which is a big disaster, which keeps on rumbling on and seems to have no end. Before that, we had the independence referendum. And so let's kind of start there. So things were going really well. I started to become a floor manager, assistant floor manager. Uh, I was working with large organizations. Large organizations do not like change. Large organizations do not like risk. And they will cut staff when they see risk coming. And so what happened is we were working in Scotland. Scotland had an independence referendum. A lot of the money was coming from down south from England. A lot of that money stopped because they didn't know what was going to happen with the referendum. Therefore, a lot of the work stopped. That happened again after Brexit. Again, there's a lot of money in TV and the media, uh, which comes from Europe. Pan-European events, uh, European pharmaceutical companies put a lot of money into live events in Europe. Uh, and all that money kind of stopped after Brexit. And again, with this pandemic, everything was going far, and all of a sudden, boom, 80% of the income stopped. And that, so that's happened for kind of two or three times. But this time around, I had built up online work. So I had built up the editing side of Vlogify. I built up the training side of Vlogify. Uh, and that is what has carried us through. And it's, it's almost not been a bump. I kind of, I had to mourn a bit the live event work because... That was such a part of my personal personality, but I'd created Vlogify in such a way that actually it didn't really need that 
to survive. And I think when you're working in such a volatile industry, in a world that is extremely volatile at the moment, you need to build in uh, a bit more of a safety net. You need to be a bit more robust. And kind of Brexit and the independence referendum prior to that uh, really helped me uh, learn how to bounce back much quicker. You know, af after Brexit, I lost 80% of my income pretty much overnight. I had a child on the way, 80% of my income, and I was calling people up who would hired me for 10 years, and they're just like, we're not hiring floor managers anymore. These are too expensive, and we don't know what money we're getting in the new year. And so literally everything fell off a cliff. And kind of from that point, I was like, right, this can't happen again. I can't let this happen again. I need to create a business, which is not me physically doing stuff. I need to create a business with systems and processes that can run without me, uh, which can give me a more consistent income. So when you were going through that, what was your mindset going through? Like, were you kind of at that point where you're like, I can't give up because I have so many people that are depending on me to make money, make an income that I needed to work hard to find what's next for me? Yeah. So, I mean, that was basically it. You know, I my partner had to go on maternity leave. She was also self-employed, so she had exactly the same problems as me. She was a stage manager at the time. And so all that kind of, a lot of that work for her as well dried up. And we had the, the added cost of a child on the way. We'd just bought a house. So it wasn't just like, oh, well, we'll move back in with mum and dad. It's just like, well, we, we bought this thing. We now need to pay for it. Uh, and it is amazing uh, the difference. Because after the independence referendum, there wasn't that big a stress because we were renting. We can move up down to England and get more work in England because that's where the money had gone. Uh, but after Brexit, there was nowhere to go unless we moved off to Europe or America or what have you. Um, and so, and we were in a position where we couldn't just jet it. We couldn't just run off and leave. Uh, and we were, I was so skilled at what I was doing that no one would hire me for other things. People were like, oh, Don, you're a floor manager. We, we couldn't hire us this thing. You've got no history of it. Um, and so, yeah, I had to. There, there was no opportunity. There was either fail and call in bankruptcy, give the house back, give the cars back, whatever, or we just had to keep on going. And it wasn't enough to work hard because we'd worked hard all the time and that was fine. But when you had to earn money for free, as an individual, had to earn money for free people at a time which is extremely difficult. You have to be smart. And that's where I kind of came up with, you know, creating a business which has systems and processes which other people can take hold of as well um you know that's that made it i don't think i would be in the position where i am now had had i not had the hardships earlier in the past few years so talk about vlogify and like what you do with that yeah so vlogify is um a business i set up in the past few years, I kind of like what I was saying earlier, it's just got so much cheaper to buy good quality equipment. It is so much easier to then create content and distribute it on platforms where people can actually see it. You know, we're not editing on our VHS machines and, send, and sending it to our pals in the post. Uh, we can really create really good quality stuff. However, I was annoyed that there were so many evangelists, like tech evangelists, digital evangelists, saying, hey, creating content is easy. All you need is a phone. And I said, well, yeah, filming a video is easy. Owning a phone with a camera is easy. But actually creating content that people care about, that resonates, that actually people want to know about, that is really hard. I mean, that is seriously hard. You know, 
people watch Netflix for 10 hours back to back, not because it, it has a nice algorithm, but because they have content which engages people and uh, creates a, and generates emotions in people. That is why people watch content. And there's so there was, especially a couple of years ago, so many people just making shocking, shocking content. And I wanted to help people through this minefield. And people were like, oh, don't make videos. I made a video once that didn't work. And I was like, well, what did you do with it? Where did it go? What was the plan? That like, oh, I didn't really have a plan. It's like, well, when you go to the gym, if you go to the gym without a plan, what do you do? You end up, you, you turn up to the gym, you go on a couple of machines, you go home, you come back later a month, and nothing happens. And of course nothing happens because you're not doing it regularly. You've not got a plan of what you're going to do. You're not got a plan of what equipment you're using. Uh, and so I'm just, we set up Vlogify to really help people with the process of film. You know, I was in telly for 15 years, live events. There is a process behind creating content. There's a process behind distributing content and managing, you know, filming stock, managing equipment, managing people. Everything is a process and everything can be learned. And awesome content comes from really, really good processes. Even though that may sound boring to people, it may be more exciting to just go out and film stuff. Actually, really successful filming processes create much better films, much more watchable films, and people engage them more. So that's why we set up Vlogify. Initially, we were uh, an in-person studio. We then moved on to online editing, and now we're moving into the online education arena. So that's really where people are making a huge difference. You know, in-house teams uh, making awesome content. Do you work with independent people or like smaller companies, or is it big companies that you work with? We. So for the editing, for the editing side of things, we get a lot from larger organizations who have a marketing team, but there's no one on that team who actually edits. Mm -hmm. uh, and so for the editing side, it is a lot more bigger companies who have budgets. Uh, you find that a lot of smaller companies either don't know how to budget for, for editing yet or are in a position where the big boss just doesn't understand the value of it. And so we're educating at the moment, but it is usually bigger companies who want editing. When it comes to the education side, that is where we can really help the smaller companies. Maybe the the person, you know, the, the companies who have has one marketing and sales person all wrapped up in one. Those are the people we're really starting to help with the online training. Because it means that there's you know there's training that um, is pitched at a price point which they can handle or their boss can handle, which is usually the issue. Uh, but it's also something that they can fit around their, sh their schedule because it's online and on demand. How do you use social media or like networking comp comp or networking sites to build your brand in a way? Mm. The worst thing you can do on social media sites is to try and sell directly on the site. You know, most people will take around about seven to twenty touch points uh, before they will actually decide to engage with you or buy from you. And so if all your videos are, this is my thing, buy, buy this thing, look at the thing, look at it, buy the thing. If all your videos are like that, people are like, oh, God, this guy, oh, my word, it's this guy. Uh, so you need to kind of have the mindset that you're not going on social media to sell something. You're going on social media to build a reputation, to build your brand, uh, to build relationships, which will eventually, you're then going to push people off the social media platform onto a bit of real estate online that you own, some kind of blog, some kind of YouTube channel, maybe a podcast channel, that kind of thing. You're pushing, you know, very, very short, very, very casual posts 
to something a little bit more evergreen in a place where you own, where you can get data from. That is the key. So people are signing out with emails. Uh, you can track with Google Analytics. That is what you're wanting. And then from there, you're then pushing people towards a desire stage where you know people are you know you're pushing people towards a five-day challenge or a webinar or getting them on your own podcast, that kind of thing. And from there, you know, you're creating a desire which you then push at that point, push a sales message or or push something else, you know, push it to the next stage, which is moving towards sales. Uh, so social media is very much the top of the funnel kind of stuff. Uh, it is extremely good for sending people towards the website and places online which me and my clients own, uh, but it isn't a be-all and end-all. LinkedIn a couple of years ago could be used as an entire sales pipeline. I mean, the amount of, of traffic that LinkedIn used to give you up until about a year ago was immense, especially if you're doing video. Uh, but they've changed the algorithm now and they're a bit more like Facebook. It is good to have LinkedIn, but you can't run everything from LinkedIn kind of talked about it almost sounds like if you're a salesperson in a way where like if you're going to a store and someone keeps coming up to you while you're in the store and trying to sell you a product the first thing that a person's going to react is saying no like no no i don't want it because i'm a person where let me learn about it on my own and let me see if it fits for me because salespeople have that like trick where they can use words or terminologies that that will get into your mind and then they're like oh we got you. You're stuck now. So yep. usually that's like the first thing is like I try, I try to avoid. And I've had jobs where I've had to be a salesperson. So I know like what the person is thinking on the other side. And to me, that was not me. I'm not a person that wants yep. to sell someone. I want to yeah. like bring knowledge or like what I do with these is kind of just inspire someone. Like give them some tools that can help them and... I don't want to force it on the person. But with LinkedIn, LinkedIn has definitely helped because I can reach out to people in all different types of industries that I've never been able to talk to. And it's kind of given me the confidence to say, I'm proud of what I'm doing. And if I'm getting these people to learn more about what I'm doing, they're inspiring from it in a way. And some people, they may not be connecting with me because of my job, because I don't really talk about my job as much. Um, but I talk about this a lot because I'm passionate about it in a way. Final questions I have for you. What does the future look like for you personally and professionally? Okay, good question. I mean, from a professional point of view, we are kind of stuck with this kind of a lot more digital world, which for me is great because, you know, there are people who even a year ago were like, oh, I don't see the point in video. Why would I do video? I can just go to networking events and I can just get people coming in my office for one-to-ones. Why would I even bother? And now those same people are like, hey, Dom, uh, you're still doing that video stuff. Uh, we have a chat about that. Uh, so, I mean, from that point of view, it's kind of, I was worried kind of a year ago that what I was doing was maybe two or three years ahead of where the audience, the, you know, the mainstream audience. So stuff I was doing a year, a year or so ago, you know, the early adopters were really into it, but a lot of, you know, non-early adopters were just not, not even close to understanding the true value of what we were doing. Uh, but I think with the pandemic, especially as people have kind of jumped and gone, oh, that is why this is important. 
So from that point of view, from a business point of view, it's extremely exciting times because people are being forced to do more digital stuff, but also people are being forced to understand the value of it as well. Uh, I'm not a big fan of selling stuff to people who don't want it. Uh, so it's very exciting when people who maybe didn't want it now want what we've got because they understand the value of it, uh, because of the changes in the world. Uh, from a personal point of view, I love traveling. And the reason why I make money is so I can go traveling. And that is a bit of a pain at the moment because, um, uh, I mean, up until this week, we were only allowed to go within five miles of our house in Scotland, which is fair enough because it's really helped to eradicate COVID-19. Uh, but it has not helped me travel. Um, and so I need either some kind of virtual reality travel, uh, uh, like uh, with binoculars or something yep. like that. I need to get to get involved with that. Uh, or we all need to, I mean, the world relies on tourism. The world relies on people being able to travel. It's all very well saying, oh, well, it does not fly. But actually, the world relies on it. So many incomes rely on it that we need to get this sort of, we need to get this working. Uh, and at the moment, it's just so uncertain on that side of things, how folk are going to, how folk are going to get that kick back off again. But I hope they do, because uh, I would like to go, I'd like to go away in the winter. Um, Scotland has beautiful springs, beautiful autumns, but the winter is extremely cold. So I am looking to go somewhere nice and warm, minimum next winter. Uh, so we'll see how that comes out. I know tourism is, uh, it's taken a huge effect right now, especially with the holidays we've been having where people travel to like lakes, beaches and all that. And then you hear the news about what's happening and positive tests that's gone on and it's kind of like okay we just gotta we're gonna get through this in a way but i've been trying to plan a vacation but then all this started happening and I'm like well i guess i'm not going on a vacation right now and my family's like trying to get me to go somewhere i'm like we'll see we'll see but yeah missouri weather wise it's it's like a roller coaster you never know what is gonna happen like it yeah. could have rained in the morning but then it could be like super hot or super cold you just never know so never i'm know. like i don't want to be here during the winter i'm like get let me take a vacation somewhere yeah yeah so the final question i have for someone listening to this interview what tips or advice would you give them to rise to their challenge to overcome obstacles and to complete their goals I mean, the thing which really actually over the years has really stuck with me is that you just need to keep going. So many others will give up early. So many others will go, oh, it's too hard. Oh, I can't do it. Oh, this, that, or the other. You need to keep going. The ones who get to the top are usually the last men or women standing. Uh, so you need to kind of believe in yourself. You need to give yourself a push once in a while. You also need to not fear failure. You know, the people who get to the top, have usually failed so many times along the way, but they've learned to get over that failure. And uh, I mean, that's that, that's happened to me so many times. People are like, oh, that's it, you're fired, you're not going to get any more, or this kind of thing. And you just bounce back. You just learn how to bounce back quicker. And when you do bounce back, you bounce back higher. Uh, and you just need to keep on going. At the end of the day, it's not over till it's over. I think individuals can grow as a person from going yeah. through failures. I think it, someone that goes through life where they've had no issues, they've been given everything, they don't know what to do in those situations. And for yeah. individuals who've gone through those situations where they've gotten fired or 
something's gone wrong. They kind of grow, they've learned, and they're prepared for anything. And if they're, they know if failure does happen, they're able to bounce back and get to the top, like you said, be that sole survivor yeah. at the top of the mountain. Yeah, you, you've just got to bear in mind that you can always bounce back. It genuinely, you may not be able to see how, but you will, or if you keep on going forward, you will always bounce back. Well, thank you, Dom, for coming on the show and talking about your rise to the challenge. Our listeners are going to learn so much from your experience and be able to push themselves to rise to their challenge for whatever they have in the future. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for having me. Tune in next time to hear my next guest talk about their rise to the challenge. If you're new to the podcast, make sure you follow and subscribe on all your favorite podcast platforms. And also, make sure you subscribe to the Rise and Challenge podcast on YouTube, as next Monday, we will have our first episode go out, and you definitely don't want to miss it. Remember, what path will you take to accomplish your goals? You decide.